This program is brought to you by Emory University. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this morning. Claire Rothschild is Associate Professor of New Testament at Lewis University, where she's been teaching since 2004. She holds a BA from the University of California, an MTS from Harvard Divinity School, and a PhD from the University of Chicago. She's the author of three books relating to the New Testament and its world, including most recently, Hebrews as Pseudepigraphon, The History and Significance of the Pauline Attribution of Hebrews, which was published in 2009. The title of her talk today is A Sovereign Debt Crisis, The Pauline Perspective of the Gospel of Mark. Please join me in welcoming her. Thanks to the dean, who I take to be the person who ran in and out, which looks like the picture on the web anyway. And uh, thanks to Walter and to the committee for the invitation uh, to come here today to speak in. I have about 35 minutes for you, and then I look forward to chatting about this topic and getting to know you. One of the most memorable episodes in the history of archaeology is the discovery of the tomb of the ancient Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun, who ruled from about 1336 to 1327 BCE. Tutankhamun's tomb lies in the Valley of the Kings behind the cliffs west of the modern city of Luxor. Between 1898 and 1914, exploration of the valley resulted in the identification of 61 tombs. The last tomb to be discovered was found in 1908 by the American businessman Theodore M. Davis. Davis continued to participate in excavations for six more years. He retired in 1914, noting, I fear that the valley of the tombs is now exhausted. Other archaeologists, however, did not share Davis's pessimism. In 1915, exploration of the Valley of the Kings was taken up in a new expedition led by the British Egyptologist Howard Carter. Carter spent six seasons in the valley in search of an undiscovered royal tomb. By the spring of 1922, seven years later, he had little to show for his efforts. A short season and the final two months of that year would be his last. On November 1st, 1922, Carter began clearing the remains of huts used by ancient workmen near the entrance to the tomb of Ramses VI. Three days later, on the morning of November 4th, he discovered the first of what would prove to be 16 steps cut into the valley floor. By sunset on November 5th, his workmen had exposed the top of a blocked doorway, sealed in plaster and stamped with the insignia of the royal necropolis. At this point, Carter was uncertain of exactly what he had discovered. Could it be a tomb of a noble buried there by royal consent? Or was it a royal cache? As far as my investigations had gone, there was absolutely nothing to tell me. But as it was, it was getting late. The night had fast set in. The full moon had risen high in the eastern heavens. I refilled the excavation for protection. Two weeks later, on November 24th, the rubble was removed from the stair and doorway, revealing seals of Tutankhamun stamped in the plastered faces of the stones blocking the entrance. Since it was too hot to excavate during summers, the work took years to complete. By fall of 1925, Carter was finally able to gaze upon the first of three elaborately gilded coffins inside the sarcophagus. Removing the lid of the outer coffin, Carter found a linen shroud draped with floral garlands. The composition of the garlands, willow, olive leaves, wild celery, lilies, and cornflower, indicated that Tutankhamun was buried in spring. When its lid was removed, the third innermost coffin was revealed. It was made of solid gold. In my view, Carter's discovery of King Tut's tomb, documented by Harry Burton's photographs exhibited at Emory's Carlos Museum in 2009, illustrates the work of the New Testament historian in at least two ways. First, 
Carter remained optimistic about the possibility of a new discovery to the very end, and in the face of overwhelming skepticism. And second, he persisted with tireless attention to detail, documentation of every layer and unforeseen delays, all for a glimpse at something no one else had seen for centuries. In the past 10 years, New Testament studies has witnessed a resurgence of interest in the relationship between Mark's gospel and Paul's letters. C. Clifton Black, Joel Marcus, and others have written major articles on different aspects of this connection. That said, Mark and Paul's undisputed letters also encompass important differences. For example, the Mark and Son of Man tradition is absent from Paul's letters. Likewise, Paul places relatively little emphasis on the kingdom of God, miracles, and demonology as compared with, with Mark. Of course, the most significant difference between Mark's gospel and the Pauline tradition is the emphasis on Jesus' life and teachings. Famously, Paul seems uninterested in either. Rather, Paul is interested in the impact and meaning of Jesus' death. A biographical account featuring Jesus' life and teachings, such as Mark, therefore, makes little sense for a Paulinist. Why, then, do scholars think that a Paulinist wrote Mark? One explanation is frustration. If Paul was frustrated, say, about the time Jesus' disciples got to spend with Jesus while he was alive, or about the authority his disciples received as a result, or if he was irked that the other disciples refused to honor his authority based on his spiritual encounter with Jesus, then a Paulinist might write a life of Jesus basically arguing that nothing great happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. Or a Paulinist might argue that although a few good things happened, some worthwhile miracles and teachings, say, they went right over the heads of the people present. In other words, those there were not any better off than those who were not there. As you might already know, this so-called failure of the disciples is a central theme of the Gospel of Mark. In 1971, a scholar by the name of Theodore Whedon published a book on the topic. As a brief side note, Whedon received both his Bachelor of Arts and his Bachelor of Divinity degrees from Emory. The thesis of this book is that the Mark and disciples exhibit faithlessness in stages, progressing from bad to worse. Initially, they are simply philosophically unperceptive, as you might expect Galilean fishermen to be. However, through persistent misunderstanding, they come on Whedon's argument to outrightly reject Jesus. From this observation, Whedon develops an allegory that the author Mark represented a Gentile branch of the movement not sanctioned by the apostolic church in his day, that is Mark's day. By casting the movement's founding fathers in a poor light, Mark invalidates his opponent's authority as they presumably had invalidated his. Today, I would like to address Whedon's theme of the failure of the disciples in Mark, but attempt to understand it historically rather than allegorically. Momentarily leaving aside issues of form and redaction criticism, the next section explores this theme albeit broadened to include not just the disciples, but a variety of eyewitnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. I take as my starting point the call stories of the disciples. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Likewise, when Jesus appoints the twelve, the author writes, he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. These call stories are usually interpreted as emphasizing Jesus' authority on the one hand or the disciples', the disciples laziness or gullibility on the other. To be sure, the narrative does not depict the disciples as making studied decisions of, well, workable offers. In the case of Simon and Andrew, they leave their life vocation for an unknown form of mendicant philosophy 
on the basis of a highly enigmatic, if apropos, promise that they will fish for people. Jesus' family, likewise, displays a kind of naivete about him. In Mark 3.21, a crowd follows Jesus home. The author writes, when his family heard of it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. In 3.31, Jesus' mother and brothers attempt to stop him from teaching the crowds. In chapter 4, Jesus begins to teach the disciples in parables. In 4.13, he asks them two questions. One, do you understand this parable? And two, then how will you understand all of the parables? The implied answers to both of these questions is no. No, we do not understand this parable, and no, we will not understand all of the rest of the parables. With these questions, seeds of doubt are planted in readers. If the disciples do not understand Jesus' parables, will they be able to appreciate his life and ministry? Later in chapter 4, Jesus stills a storm. In this passage, the Mark and Jesus' frustration at his disciples' lack of faith suggests that the disciples cannot merely be passed off as lazy or innocent. He has performed more than one miracle in their midst, and with the first rocky seas, they think he does not care that they might die. Reading on, the disciples ask Jesus to dismiss the crowd so that they can find food in the surrounding country and villages before dark. Jesus replies that the disciples themselves should feed the people. They ask, are we to go and buy two denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? I can just hear Jesus. Forget it. Jesus then multiplies five loaves and two fish, feeding 5,000 people. In Mark 6.45, Jesus puts his disciples in a boat. When another adverse wind arises, the disciples struggle to keep the boat afloat. Jesus walks toward them on the water. They think they see a phantasma or ghost. Take heart, Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And the narrator adds, they were utterly stupefied, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. While it is unclear exactly why the author points to the miracle of the loaves at this point, the depiction of the disciples certainly worsens. Not only do the disciples fail to recognize Jesus, but they become fearful of him and their hearts are hardened, a well-known metaphor for apostasy, used early in the, earlier in the narrative of the Pharisees conspiring to kill Jesus. In chapter 7, Jesus again finds himself in a dispute with the Pharisees over Jewish customs. Evidently, Jesus' disciples do not wash their hands before eating. To the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus replies with a passage from Isaiah, suggesting that laws like hand-washing are unimportant. However, he grossly simplifies his message for the crowd. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. The simplicity of the message notwithstanding, once the crowd departs, the disciples have questions. Jesus' response borders on the crass. Do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? The narrator, narrator then adds a parenthetical summarizing statement in case there is any lingering doubt. Thus he declared all foods clean. Chapter 8 is the heart of the gospel. In this chapter, Jesus and the disciples must again feed a large crowd of people. The disciples ask, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? At this point, the ancient reader had to have been thinking, I don't know, faith in Jesus? Still, Jesus maintains his composure and multiplies loaves again. However, in 8.14, the text reports that for a third time, the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. They had, it says, only one loaf with them in the boat. Sensing a problem, Jesus cautions them, using bread as a metaphor. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Here, yeast obviously signifies some kind of insidious corruption, a kind of debasement that infiltrates undetected. But the disciples do not intuit this meaning. Instead, they reason, 
It is because we have no bread. When Jesus becomes aware of this positively inane interpretation, he officially loses his cool. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? It is difficult to deny that Jesus is exasperated with the disciples at this point. Privileged so as to spend time with the creator and the savior of the universe, they are only able to focus on their next meal. My sons would have made excellent Markan disciples. In 827, Jesus asked the disciples what the man on the street is saying about him. They reply that some think he is John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asks them who they think he is. Peter volunteers that he is the Christ, to which Jesus offers no direct reply. However, in 831, Jesus openly states the first of three suffering Son of Man predictions. Peter's reaction to the prediction is negative. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Really? At this, Jesus turns and looks at all of the disciples. Erupting in anger, he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on what is divine, but what is human. This phrase most likely suggests that Peter has infringed on his rights as a disciple. The preposition behind suggests a follower. Commanding Peter to get behind means that Peter presumes too soon his role as Jesus' successor. Satan suggests that Jesus views Peter as, at a minimum, a stumbling block on the path of his destiny. The incident incites Jesus to teach about social roles in the movement in general. He says, For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Mark 9, 2 to 13 narrates Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a secluded place on a high mountain where he is metamorphosized, and Elijah appears with Moses. As Jesus speaks with Elijah and Moses, Peter, flustered by the epiphany, foolishly offers to build booths. Mark narrates that Peter did not know what to say and that all three disciples were terrified. Coming down the mountain, Jesus reiterates that the Son of Man will suffer and will be treated with contempt. Mark 9, 14 to 29 depicts a group of unspecified disciples failing in their attempt to exercise a demon-possessed boy. Jesus arrives on the scene and successfully exercises the demon, after which the disciples inquire as to why they were unable to cast it out. We note here that throughout the second gospel, spiritual entities have an edge over the disciples. They recognize Jesus, whereas the disciples, like the scribes and Pharisees, do not. Jesus' answer is straightforward. This kind can come out only through prayer. Should the disciples perhaps have realized this? In any case, their ineffectiveness is again showcased. Jesus then reminds the disciples for the second time that the Son of Man will be betrayed, killed, and will rise again. Remarkably, the disciples exhibit a bit of sense at this point. The text records, and they did not know what he was talking about, but were afraid to ask. On arriving in Capernaum, Jesus asked the disciples what they had been arguing about along the way. They were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, who was the greatest? Jesus, more mild-mannered than me, summons the twelve and addresses them, saying, Whoever wants to be the first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. A simple enough lesson, one would think. Yet less than a chapter later, in 10, 13 to 16, Mark reports, people were bringing little children to Jesus, 
in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was furious and said to the disciples, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them. For it is to such as these the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This passage is profoundly disturbing in that Jesus turns from the disciples to unspecified children, blessing the children rather than the disciples. In 938-39, John tells Jesus that they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name and so tried to stop him. The disciples' precise complaint is interesting. Quote, teacher, we saw a certain someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. End quote. Jesus replies that they should not try to stop him, correcting that whoever's not against us is for us. In 942 to 50, Jesus develops this point about the disciples hindering children and exorcists in a severe warning about the consequences of such misjudgments. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these small or unimportant ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. In 1010, the disciples do not understand Jesus' teaching on divorce. And in 1024, Jesus offers a teaching on wealth over which the disciples become perplexed. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The text reports, thoroughly confused, the disciples ask, then who can be saved? Peter adds that no one has given up more to follow Jesus than himself and the other disciples, to which Jesus counters the first will be last, and the last will be first. Does Jesus mean that the first of the apostles will be last, and the last of the apostles will be first? Who was the first of the apostles? Who was the last of the apostles? In 1032, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The text reports that they were dumbfounded, and that those who followed were terrified. At this time, Jesus offers his third and final suffering son of man prediction, after which James and John approach Jesus with a special request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. These disciples then specify their demand. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus is not amused. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Naturally, when the other disciples hear of this discussion, they become angry with James and John. So Jesus, even as the hour of his betrayal draws near, calls them over and reprimands them. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 11, 12 to 14, Jesus curses a fig tree. In verses 20 to 25, Peter recognizes that the curse was effectual. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. To which Jesus replies curtly, have faith in God. As the scene opens on chapter 13, Jesus emerges from the temple. One of his disciples exclaims, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings, upon which Jesus predicts its fall. Once Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Andrew withdraw to the Mount of Olives, his disciples ask him when the temple will fall. In the course of his answer, Jesus warns them not to be led astray. It is not difficult to imagine why he offers this advice. Jesus then warns them to dismiss anyone announcing, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Because in the last days, false Christs and prophets will abound. 
Unfortunately, this advice arrives too late for Peter, who made this very pronouncement in 829. In Bethany, an unnamed woman anoints Jesus with costly aromatic, uh, yeah, aromatic oil. Those there scold her for wasting what could have been sold for money. Jesus, in turn, rebukes her accusers. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? In 1410, one of the twelve, Judas, betrays Jesus to the chief priests for money. The very slight attention paid to Judas' action in Mark serves not to detract from Peter's position as worst of the disciples. Shortly thereafter, the disciples share the Passover with Jesus. At this meal, he tells them that one of them will hand him over. Still, one after the next denies the possibility. After the meal, the group returns to the Mount of Olives. Jesus predicts that the disciples will desert him. Peter refutes Jesus' prophecy. Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus answers that, in fact, Peter will. Truly, I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter repeats with, the Greek says, greatest insistence. Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the others make the same promise. The group then enters the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times Jesus asks the disciples to remain awake while he prays. Three times they fall asleep. The third time he sternly reproves them. Judas arrives, hands Jesus over with a kiss. A disciple draws his sword and strikes the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. All of the disciples then flee. Not one is present for the crucifixion, burial, or resurrection of Jesus. And at this, the lowest moment in the narrative, after all of Jesus' disciples have abandoned him, a young man takes off across the stage naked. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. The meaning of this action, not to mention the individual's identity, is a matter of intense speculation. One possibility is that he represents a service currents or a running slave, a staple character of Roman comedy. Among other functions, this stock character plays the role of a fool, providing comic relief from what is taking place in the narrative. As J. Albert Harrell writes concerning Plautus Captivi 768-80, quote, the serious dilemmas of the plot become a mere obstacle to dinner, end quote. Have the disciples rushed off to find bread? Why would Mark insert a service currens at this point in the narrative? Does he wish to convey that the disciples' desertion is worse than a failure? It is quite literally a joke. Following the desertion, Peter denies Jesus three times, after which, in a posture of abject humility and shame, he breaks down and weeps. And still, Mark's humiliation of eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry is not finished. After Jesus is killed and buried, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome go to the tomb to anoint his body. They proceed to the tomb despite the fact that they expect an unmovable stone to block the entrance. Luckily, the stone has been moved. But unluckily, at least in terms of the women's original plan, Jesus' body has vanished. The women are frightened by the presence in the tomb of a nameless individual wearing white clothing. Although this individual directs the women to tell Peter and the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee as he promised, the women are terrified. Like the disciples at Jesus' arrest, they flee. They never deliver the message. In summary, with few exceptions, most eyewitnesses, disciples, scribes, Pharisees, and simple people on the street in the Gospel of Mark at best misunderstand, at worst reject Jesus. The question is not just why they do so, 
But why such a gospel would prove so durable in Christian tradition, valuable enough in the cases of Matthew and Luke to be rewritten? In whose interest was it to demonstrate that the first disciples misunderstood and even abandoned Jesus? One answer is, of course, Paul. It is a virtual certainty that Paul's authority was denied on the basis of the fact that he did not spend time with the historical Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9, the issue comes to the fore as nowhere else. Paul writes, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? 2 Corinthians also brings the issue into relief. Speaking sarcastically in chapters 10 through 12 as an idiotes, or fool, Paul argues that he is not in the least inferior to the super-apostles. He refers to his opponents as false apostles, disguising themselves as apostles. In verse 12, he spells out why he should be considered an apostle by the church in Corinth. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul's authority also seems to be a problem among the churches in Galatia. His letter to them begins, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The emphasis on Jesus raising here is crucial. Even though he never met the historical Jesus, Paul argues, his call is not derivative or secondhand. On the basis of a vision of the risen Jesus, which he narrates next in this letter, Paul argues that he too very much qualifies as one cent, the meaning of the word apostle. A text known as the Pseudo-Clementines may offer a glimpse at Peter's side of the story. Peter very reasonably asks Paul, Can anyone be made competent to teach through a vision? And if your opinion is, that is possible, why then did our teacher spend a whole year with us? But if you were visited by Jesus for the space of an hour and were instructed by him and thereby have become an apostle, then proclaim his words. Expound what he taught. Be a friend to his apostles. And do not contend with me who am his confidant. In conclusion, Mark's gospel makes as little as possible of human relationships with Jesus while he was alive. It almost seems in Mark that knowing Jesus before he died was a liability to understanding his true purpose. In 1532, Mark ridicules the truism that seeing is believing. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the chief priests and scribes mock him, saying, Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Mark's contrary emphasis is formulated in the Gospel of John in this way. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. My current working hypothesis is, therefore, against the traditional claim that Mark was written by someone associated with Peter, that the Markan theme of the failure of eyewitnesses demonstrates a historical association with Paul. In particular, it validates Paul's authority as an apostle. The first known response was probably Matthew's gospel, whose purpose was to refute the idea. Perhaps written in Antioch on the Orontes, the precise city of the dispute between Peter and Paul that puts them at odds forever, where the Didache and Ignatius first attest to it as the gospel, Matthew approves of his disciples, blesses them as his little ones, and of course, restores Peter's image. In Matthew, Peter walks on water. Four final observations emphasize the connection between Mark's gospel and Paul's letters. First, thanatography. As noted above, it is difficult to imagine a Paulinist writing a life of Jesus. That said, it is possible to imagine him writing a thanatography, 
a narrative in which the importance of Jesus' life is de-emphasized in favor of the all-saving importance of his death. Martin Kaler once referred, famously referred to all four Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions. As early as Mark 3, 6, or perhaps earlier, readers learn that Jesus will die. Mark's Gospel is not a life, but a death of Jesus, a tale of his victory through demise. Such a narrative maps perfectly on Paul's emphasis on Jesus' death. Number two, immediately. Likewise, the Gospel of Mark gives the impression that Jesus' ministry sped by. Famously, the Greek word euthus, or immediately, occurs 42 times in 16 chapters, 11 times in the first chapter alone. The entire narrative can be squeezed into only a few weeks' time. Contrast the Gospel of John, in which the narration of Jesus' ministry requires three years. According to Mark, time with Jesus was not only futile, but furiously fast. Number three, Son of Man prediction sayings. The three Son of Man prediction sayings are a very important element of the Gospel of Mark. With these predictions, the author emphasizes that Jesus knows his fate. Does Paul ever divulge that Jesus knows his fate? In fact, he does. In the words of institution, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul presents Jesus as correctly prognosticating his death. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Like Mark's three suffering son of man sayings, Paul presents Jesus as aware that he will die. Contrast the Mark and disciples who refute both the veracity and necessity of this teaching three times. Finally, the service currents. In terms of Mark 14.51, as noted above, the naked young man may exhibit Roman comedy's service currents motif. As such, it would suggest intentional humor on the part of the author, even mockery at the narrative's nadir, the disciples' desertion. The Greek word for young man in Mark 14, 50, and 51 is naniskos. Of only a few other New Testament occurrences, naniskos is used of Paul at the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7.53. Most scholars believe Stephen's martyrdom was modeled after the Mark passion narrative. Drawing connections between the two young men, in Mark 14, a young man at Jesus' arrest left his linen cloth at the guard's feet. In Acts 7, witnesses to Stephen's stoning deposited their coats at the young man Paul's feet. In both settings, the young man is tied to the arrest in the position of climax. Furthermore, the only other market occurrence of the noun Naniscos is found in chapter 15 referring to the young man in the tomb. In Mark 14, the young man loses his linen cloth. In Mark 15, the young man is dressed in a white robe, just as Jesus had been at the Epiphany of Elijah with Moses at the Transfiguration. Were the young men in Mark 14 and 15 to refer to the same individual, and were they, as in Acts 7:58, to refer to Paul, then the author might be arguing, literally or figuratively, that as a young man, Paul himself witnessed Jesus' abandonment by his disciples, and that Paul was the first to really witness Jesus' resurrection. So what does any of this have to do with a sovereign debt crisis? In modern economic terms, a sovereign debt crisis is the failure by the government of a sovereign state to pay back its debt in full. The current crisis in Europe involves the recognition that, like it or not, the economies of the individual sovereign governments are intricately related. Greece's debt, for example, is not its own. I use the expression sovereign debt as an analogy for the Guild's growing interest in Pauline reception or the influence of Paul's letters on other early Christian texts. In the case of Mark, I observe a pro-Pauline leitmotif. Is this the only purpose of Mark's gospel? Certainly not. 
In my view, however, this motif both offers an explanation for the motivation and reception of this work and opens up enough additional questions about it and about the New Testament in general to satisfy graduate programs for generations. Today, with technological and other advances, scholars are positioned as never before to pursue such questions, demanding only talent, energy, dedication, and commitment to excellence of the type represented par excellence by the faculty and students of Emory. Thank you. Claire has agreed to take questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and use the microphone. Uh, Claire, um, a fascinating um, presentation and um, giving a new twist to uh, a position that very conservative scholars like Vincent Taylor argued many, many years ago that Mark had a kind of a Pauline turn to it, but with a more polemical edge, surely. Um, let me just ask about the Nianiskos. I mean, just I mean, as you said in the beginning, one of the, one of the things that scholars do is pay a lot of attention to detail. And there were two details in your exposition, which I thought overall was quite convincing on the stupidity and disloyalty of the apostles. But on the um, response of Jesus to Peter in chapter 10, you moved immediately from Peter saying, we've left everything, right, to the first will be last and the last will be first. But in between there, there is the promise of Jesus of a present and a future restoration, right? So there's not entirely, and the poloi eschatoi and poloi protoi is not simply directed to Peter. I, I, I picked up the intimation that you felt that this was lowering Peter specifically rather than, um, did I read you correctly on that? I may have, I may have, but it's, you're right. So, and then together with that, here's my, here's my difficulty with your very in inventive reading of the Neoniskos. I very much agree with you that the Neoniskos who flees naked in 1451 is picked up in 16. Um, nakedness, clothing, the same word, they, they shout out to be read in light of each other, right? right? So the most obvious way to read this within Mark is as the hope of restoration, right? Those who uh, have abandoned have the hope of restoration. The young man then is therefore the first witness to the resurrection within Mark. It's not an angel, it's not a heavenly figure, it's this young guy who fled. But his statement is that Peter will see Christ in the future, the resurrected yeah. one. Yeah. So in some sense, the young man is linked with, in a sense, the hope of restoration of Peter as well. And all of that works for me, but I don't see Acts as being in service to Paul by using the term neoniskos in the death of Stephen. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the bit of evidence I'm having problem with. I'm only saying that in that case, it actually is Paul. Paul is the Naniscus. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, so then that word occurs like nine times total in the New Testament. Right. And that, so one of them is referring to Paul, so the, there's the slim chance. I didn't try to present it as something too okay, likely. Okay, so it's just but kind of suggestive. A, yeah, yeah. Okay, because that's, that's where I was sort of stumbling, because... If we're, in other words, we'd be reading it kind of allegorically again, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. and and I didn't know how Paul became the Neoniskos. Um, well, I think you could take it without Acts or with Acts, and you could say he's symbolic. He's the Neoniskos in Mark fourteen and fifteen yeah. is symbolic of Paul or a figurative reference to Paul. But um, without Acts, Claire, how would we think of Paul in that place? And I'll stop. Okay, yeah, it's a good question. So you would have needed, this argument would be cumulative, and you would need, you know, a lot of uh, the rest of my argument um, to say so. Uh, I think also, you know, there's a strange thing going on there. The reason that scholars read that... <laughs> Sorry, I'm used That's to wondering. That's for being engaged. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you can help me with that so I can answer the question. Um, the reason that... Hold it. 
Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's still going. Okay. The reason that I, I think that, that scholars have insisted, there are many inter uh, interpretations of the, the uh, young man, the naked young man. And the reason that they're interpreted symbolically is because the event doesn't make sense because it says they all fled and then there's one more person there. So that means that somehow the audience is supposed to think that the author knows who that person is, knows that that person is there, and knows who that person is, when the author himself can't have been there. So this is what lends itself to this must be someone else. I see. So I think, I mean, there are lots of different interpretations. One of the most famous ones is this um, great interpretation that it represents a baptismal rite and all of this. And the other thing that's strange, yeah, the strange thing about the Gnaniscus is he doesn't have a coat that gets taken. He has linen, which is like a strange thing to have um, that, that gets taken. So they take that as symbolic of... Um, of, of various things, but of, of, of the baptism, say. I think, in light of all of the other evidence, it's also possible that it represents Paul, and Acts is there as using that word to represent the to be Paul. Not the strongest argument. Claire, could I ask you a question about this? Um, this is probably the most dramatic way I've heard Paul uh, Mark described in terms of Jesus' response to those people who desert him. But I want to offer one other character in the gospel that you didn't mention who deserts Jesus. And it's the last articulate statement that Jesus makes in the gospel, which is, my God, why did you desert me? So it strikes me that another way to read this is <clears throat> if God can desert him, why would you think that it's a problem that human beings desert him? Which is to say that the very last thing that Jesus articulately says, besides groaning, and we take Jesus to be a trustworthy interpreter, is that deserting me is not necessarily the last way you should conceive of yourself. Because otherwise, you'd have to say that there's no relationship with God that extends beyond Jesus' statement that you deserted me. And it's hard to imagine that that's what the gospel writer wanted these people to hear. So it, it seems to me a, another way to see this desertion motif is that it's actually mitigated by the fact that everybody who encounters Jesus ultimately deserts him. And what's being put forward is the downward movement that occurs that underscores the fundamental courage and obedience of this one person. That's another way to read this, and I think it still makes sense out of all the evidence you laid out without having to move towards a middle term described from Acts. Uh, that's a brilliant observation that I hadn't thought of, and I've read a fair amount about these, um, this motif, so I, th I thank you for it. I would only want to point out one thing. Peter, even though Peter is being, oh, what do you say, put down or um, denigrated in this gospel, he's still the first of the disciples. So Mark is not, Mark has history. I, I think that he has historical traditions and he wishes to present history. He cannot, he will not, um, he'll retell the story, but the details will not be eliminated. So he could have told the story, and Peter was not the first of the disciples. He was the last of the, of the disciples. And, um, or he could have told the story without Peter in the story. You know. But he wasn't willing to change it, um, to, to eliminate what he took to be factual. Yeah, that's a, that, that there is, a, to my knowledge, a traditional reading. I think, um, I think there may be something else going on because of the um, pervasiveness of the theme. Okay, yes. Uh, thank you, Claire. Very, very interesting uh, indeed. Um, extension of the work of uh, Ted Whedon uh, to into this uh, Pauline interpretation of Mark. It really is intriguing. Um, I agree with you um, to follow the Neoniskos in Mark. Now, I uh, could have expected uh, once uh, 
Luke asked the kinds of questions he did about the Neoniskos and, and observed how the Neoniskos tells the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter about this, that you might return uh, to 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. Where the Pauline um, expansion and development of the creedal statement is that uh, the risen Christ appeared first to Peter. Okay. But now this raises a question I want to ask of you. What do you understand then to be the function of this Pauline reader, or Pauline writer of Mark, if this is what we have? If Peter is still put in the first position and that of uh, the one who will see Jesus and the, the uh, Neoniskos in chapter 16 uh, says go and tell the disciples and Peter and that can be Petrine. What is the function then for this Pauline author of the women? Why is it that the women have seen an empty tomb something that Paul himself does not mention. And what would you understand to be their function then within this uh, later Pauline kind of uh, uh, promulgation of the gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection? In other words, the women are the ones who receive the final instruction, right? Yeah, I, it's a very good question. There are so many themes in that question, I hardly uh, know where to begin. Um, but I think that, you, first of all, you point out a problem. If it's so Pauline, then the, and the Peter doesn't, you know, the, it's, the text is explicit that they do not deliver the message, then Paul, if Peter's still primal or first in Paul, then why is it that he doesn't get the message or whatever? So there's something about that being the end of the denigration of the disciples and how the news story starts such that Peter is first, which the author is not willing to compromise as an historical fact, um, isn't covered. So I'm not sure. I think it's a, a great um, observation. Now, how the women are, say, responsible for this, I have not taken it to be um, more against these women than against any of the other disciples that fail. It's just like the ending is that, and then wouldn't you know, it doesn't work. Or, and so it's not clear how Peter will receive the message. Uh, it's left, of course, there. But again, maybe what the author is implying, what wishes to imply, is that this will be a spiritual um, experience and that the history is over. Well, I'm wondering what the next iteration of this uh, wonderful journey kind of, of imagining uh, a, a development within Pauline writing activity that uh, one of the scribes, a person with scribal ability, writes the first gospel, Mark. Um, would you, are we going to see uh, uh, a coalition with some other things that have been observed about Mark such that maybe the writer of Mark is one of the women in the Pauline circle who's been a fellow worker with Paul and in fact has the status maybe of kind of uh, enough wealth to be a household owner or something who's learned to write and maybe has written the Gospel of Mark and thus in all of this Petrine, Pauline kind of thing, uh, women are claiming to have a kind of knowledge about the resurrected Lord that they have passed around through gossip or something and they want to get this going. And, in, and it really takes so that Matthew and Luke uh, buy into that and accept that. So is this, is this pointing to the strong function of Pauline women, uh, of women in the Pauline circles? I have no idea. That's, again, that's a fantastic observation I had never thought about. The only thing that, one of the things that occurs to me at the moment that problematizes the theory is that the Neoniskos knows too. If, especially as Luke was saying, he agrees that 14 and 15 are meant to be correlative, they're supposed to be the same person, and that they're a human being, then you have, unless that Neoniskos is actually, you know, female, then it, then it wouldn't just be the women that he would know as well. 
But it's very interesting. It's just so noticeable that Paul doesn't mention any women at, at, except in the law, maybe they're in the large group. Yeah, yeah, you know, just can I say something that's not directly to that question, but that I've thought of lately is, one thing that I think we haven't considered enough, maybe, is that Paul doesn't mention, might be Paul couldn't mention, and the reason that Paul couldn't mention something may have to do with that he doesn't have the clout to talk about it because he wasn't there with the historical Jesus. So, like, this, that's the whole idea. I wonder if Luke's class hasn't been talking about, but... You know, maybe Paul would want to explain some of the teachings of Jesus that he certainly must have known through contact with various um, disciples, but maybe he never used it in his rhetorical arguments because he wasn't there. You know, how, so it's secondhand, and he seems to be very interested in what he knows firsthand rather than what he knows secondhand. I mean, there are many other ways to explain it, like, you know, there wasn't any reason to bring it up in the letter or something, or not until the end of Romans when he does bring up some of the teachings, or say, the middle of, of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. But... I just recently have thought of this idea of maybe if this really is this strong battle for apostleship and this problem of his, his only having a spiritual experience of Jesus, not the historical experience, then the things that happen in history, he may well know and just hasn't have the, uh, wasn't there and so can't bring them up like people would just say, well, how, you know, you weren't there. It's another spin on something. Again, a fascinating uh, read of the Gospel of Mark. Um, um, I wonder if the, the way in which the Gospel of Mark, I mean, it seems to me that what happens in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark has a particular understanding of faith, you know, true faith or authentic faith in the Christ figure, which the disciples, the apostles, everyone close to, to Jesus fails to experience or to exhibit and that's a common theme from start to finish but the other theme in the gospel of mark which i I was surprised you didn't pick up was the mystery that that there's something ineffable there's something mysterious there's something elusive about this figure that everyone misses and the way in which that relates to you know pauline understanding of faith that that Faith is a kind of existential um, um, relationship with God, faith in Christ, faith of Christ, that there's a strong mystical or or, um, theme or dimension in Paul where it's not graspable, it's not by direct proximity, uh, geographical proximity. And um, it seems to me that those two themes would reinforce each other. so, I mean, would you see that, that other continuous theme in the Gospel of Mark as uh, reinforcing or competitive or aligned with that or an intentional way of aligning the Gospel of Mark with, with Pauline understandings of Christology? Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's going on as well. There are a couple people who have, um, so very famous in history, Gustav Volkmar wrote this famous, uh, famous book, D. Somebody knows something? Anyway, I can't think of it right now, the title. Um, but anyway, and he argued that the, the entire Gospel of Mark is an allegory about Paul. The entire thing, every single piece, every single place where Jesus shows up, it's actually Paul doing X and Y, and he interprets the whole thing. So, and he has a lot of stuff like that in it. After that, um, Martin Werner wrote and said, no, it's all wrong, none of it's Paul. And everybody let it, you know, sort of stop there until recently. Um, in addition, for Lightfoot's uh, Festschrift, uh, somebody named F.C. Fenton wrote a, wrote a nice article called Paul and Mark, and he picks up a lot. It's set, your question sounds like the theme of his article. A lot of this um, a relationship, say. I think those are, many of those could be there, and I have a whole series of my own that I didn't bring forward as well. But I'm not sure. Those are... Uh, impressionistic comparisons and I think that one has to convince um, me more that there's a that the certainty of kind of Paulinism before we're going to bring other more um, fluid kind of comparisons together but I would completely agree basically 
The Messianic Secret, of course, famous in Mark, I have, I'm all armed of thought for hours and hours and hours preparing for such a question. And I'm glad it didn't come straight away, but it sort of came obliquely. And um, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do with this yet, but I have the idea that if you look carefully at what is silenced, it's the demons and the people who are healed. And then Peter is silenced. And I'm wondering, and when, you know, Peter says you're the Christ, what Jesus does is sort of funny. It's sort of, most people take it to be he's endorsing the idea, but it also isn't a flat-out endorsement. He doesn't say, yes, I am, don't tell. You know, he says, don't tell. And he said to them, don't say anything about this. So it's sort of funny, like, why not just say? So I've started to wonder if um, the the source of the problem isn't the person. So in other words, we shouldn't interpret it um, to be quiet. It should be more like, you shut up. Because it's the prob- the problem is the person who's delivering the demons aren't supposed to be the recogni- to recognize Jesus. The people who are uh, miraculously healed aren't, and Peter's not. So I'm not sure, but I think that the messianic secret is important and needs to be a part of this thesis if it's to be persuasive. Yeah, Luke. Just along those lines, it is striking that the one time in which somebody, the Gerasene demonia, Mm-hmm. Was also among the tombs. Mm-hmm. Right, and is also so the, naked. Also gets clothed. Right, and wants to be with Jesus, as Mark says three twenty in three twenty. That's why the disciples were chosen to be with Jesus. Right, is uh, told to go tell everything that God has done, and he goes off and tells what Jesus had done to him. Yep. So the one place in which the I mean. Uh, Coming down from the transfiguration, they are to keep silence until he's been raised from the dead. And in some sense, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, I think, which is the exception to the secret, is this open proclamation of what God has done. And in some sense, Mark's structure pushes us to go into the middle of the story to find the ending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that's, that's where the good news of what Jesus has done has been spread by somebody who is now, notice, Sofernunta in his right mind, right? He's clothed, he's seating at the right hand of Jesus, and he's in his right mind, whereas formerly he was naked, in the tombs, chained, crazy, all that. So I think there's some intricate literary interconnections uh, which uh, Mark invites us to, to get into. Yeah, you know, there's a theory about that. The reason that they're asked to, sorry, to, to speak, he's told to speak openly is he's beyond the borders of... It's Gentile world. Yeah, it's Gentile world. So, and then the, the, that's confirmed with the centurion at the end, you know, um, acclaiming him as the son of God. I, I'm not sure. Um, but, but I could agree with you completely. And, you know, the other place he mentions, he tells Peter openly... That's, you know, a bit of a problem. That's the other place where he's explicit that it can be told. I don't know. I guess there is. Maybe it's because I teach the Gospels a lot go into the Gospels beyond the New Testament, uh, that um, when I go back to this issue of the relation of Paul to the Gospels, it seems to me that, that uh, one of the most uh, powerful arguments for the possibility of Pauline influence on Mark is the existence of the death at the end of the Gospel of Mark, which you have said. I myself think, there may be some other people in this room who don't uh, think that something like a Q collection of sayings existed without uh, an account of the death at the end. I couldn't imagine him thinking that way, but some people do think that way. <coughs> uh, there's a, a Paul seems to know some sayings that are regularly associated with Q material, and there's a very strong thesis in among some in New Testament studies, that a collection of sayings was growing at this time in such a way that it could have been competitive with a gospel like Mark as a gospel 
according to Jesus. And we see a gospel like that in the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. And we've had reconstruction of this in such a way. Now, one of the interesting things is that in the Q material, as it is uh, reconstructed, Jesus, in fact, tells the disciples that they can anticipate in the future that they will sit on thrones judging over the 12 tribes of Israel. And both Matthew and Luke keep that, even though there is this strong mark and uh, context where Jesus rebukes James and John for thinking that well, they will sit at his right and left hand and have some kind of power. So do you, do you think that the Gospel of Mark, written in this way, it put other kinds of ways of writing uh, memories of Jesus into a kind of spin or in a kind of uh, out of business in this Western movement in such a way that the only place it would really thrive would be more in Eastern Syria and then down in Egypt. Uh, it, does your thinking, are you uh, willing to think uh, in that kind of way with me or does that not seem right to you? So I, as I understand the question is where's the um, author of the Gospel of Mark get his motivation for his form? Or to put it another way, one of the most persuasive reasons for thinking that the Gospel of Mark may have Pauline influence in it is the way in which it focuses so dramatically on the death of Jesus. When in fact, there may have been oh. many other Christians yes. who focused on Jesus in many is other ways, focusing on his miracles or on his sayings in such a way that Jesus' death did not remain in a position of prominence. Yes, I completely agree. But Mark seems to be interested in um, a little of both. Like there is, seems to be a historical interest. He doesn't have to write a life of Jesus. Let's just for a moment call it that. He doesn't have to do that. He can write pro-Pauline apologetic in any way that he writes. Why does he choose to, do, to use biography as a form? It seems very strange. So there's something about proving some of the things that are true for Paul through a life of Jesus that matters. And for life of Jesus, he's also not interested in making up the details. So it's kind of wild. He wants, for example, Paul never mentions John the Baptist. Who knows what Paul thought about John the Baptist? Mark starts with John the Baptist, as though he has to. So there's this tension. I'm not exactly sure. Yes, there's a real focus on the death. And I brought that forward. And many people have noticed that. And famously, uh, Martin Kaler talked about it. Um, but it's still got s s a lot of elements of the life. And Q material as John the Yeah, well, no. Q, the critical edition of Q begins with Q30, which says John. <laughs> it's one of my fav favorite uh, moments in the redaction of Q. I mean, I actually kind of quasi by Q, but that's preposterous, right? That we have Q based on Luke, and it's Luke 3 0. There's no Luke 3 0. <laughs> so the idea that it's Q 3 0, and it starts with, um, and in fact, I'm sorry, it starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. Then it bumps to Q 3 4, which is John the Baptist. So I think Q officially does begin with John the Baptist. Of course, you may already know what I think about Q and John the Baptist, but. Um, no, but I think that you're right, that there are, t there are traditions out there that Mark is probably responding to about an interest in Jesus' life and teachings, and he's got this counter-interest in Jesus, primarily Jesus' death through a story of his life and teachings. So, long way to say yes. Nice observation. Let's express our appreciation to Claire. <laughs>